you like books? I'm outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. Read it. Sometimes I write something. What are you writing? Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern, and this is Bookable. On today's show, time for an introduction. So we're doing something a little bit different today. A summer treat, if you will. I want you to meet Storybound. Storybound is a podcast from the Podglomerate and Lit Hub Radio, and it features the most top-notch authors reading from their books, and it's got original sound design and amazing music. And to help celebrate the launch of their second season, what we're going to do is we're going to air one of my personal favorites from season one. And that episode is Mitchell S. Jackson, who we love over here at Bookable and would be very happy to welcome him to my closet to record. Uh, Mitchell S. Jackson will be reading from his memoir, Survival Math. And while you're listening, you want to make sure to subscribe to the Storybound feed so that you don't miss any of season two, because there's an upcoming author that you definitely don't want to miss. Her name is me. Anyway, I'm going to turn it over now to Storybound and Mitchell S. Jackson. And just in advance, I'm going to say, you're welcome. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. This is our final episode of the season. Coming up in one minute, you will hear a story told by Mitchell Jackson, followed by a song from Zane, featuring Stephanie Strange. My name is Mitchell S. Jackson, and I will be reading the prologue of Survival Math Notes on an All-American Family. It's a letter to a man named Marcus Lopez, who was the first black man to ever step foot on what became my home state, Oregon. Dear Marcus, ain't no way you could know this, but you were the first of us to set foot on the land that became the state where I was born. Oregon. And now here we are, strangers, but not estranged. More like kindred. More like forevermore tethered to terra firma by a death date and a birth date. Yours, August 16th, 1788. Mine, August 16th, 1975. Here I am centuries after your death, wanting to share with you what has become of the place where you gasped your last breath, and I gloried my first. There's much I don't know about your living and breathing in Cape Verde, so I've envisioned what it was like. Have pictured you hanging to the ports, burnished, famished, bleary-eyed, proclaiming to anybody with ears that you'd board a ship bound for the new world and change forevermore your fortune. Then Captain Robert Gray and his crew docked their sloop for a little R&R and refitting. The way I picture it, Gray trekked inland and high-sighted about how historic his voyage would be, 
about how he'd captained his Lady Washington around Cape Horn and through the Drake Passage to America's west coast to trade trinkets for furs and sail on to China, about how he was looking to add a new member to his small crew. As I imagine it, his notice sounded to you like the ocean looked in your dreams. So you fat-mouthed to Gray and crew how much you knew about seafaring, how quick you could learn what you didn't know. Big upped how good you were with your hands, how able a swimmer you were, the super through in your thin arms and legs. Declared, if there was a challenge to be met, you'd meet it. So help you God. Whatever your pitch, sure enough, you were soon aboard the ship and sailing around the horn for this new world. What were those days like? Did you expect to watch the sunset over the horizon, to witness a full moon in a sky sprint with stars, to hear the music of the sails catching the wind, but instead sorrowed over gales bashing the yards, a tempest tossing the ship on her broadside, gray yelling, your shipmate Haswell, did y'all call him Robbie? logged in his journal details of your first day in this place we share, your last day on Earth. He wrote that the ship landed at Tillamook Bay and he and some of the crew had a meal with the natives while the rest of you were out cutting grass for livestock. But you took a break, stabbed your cutlass in the sand, and when you turned your back, one of the natives snatched it and broke out. I imagine you dread it. Were it me, I would have been spooked something serious. The prospect of Gray learning you'd lost your tool, of him losing faith in you, and that you wanted to avoid a grave cost. The prospect of the crew teasing you something terrible about being green and or the haters among them dubbing you a dim-witted black boy for the rest of the voyage. Or maybe... It was fear that the cost of the tool would be subtracted from whatever pay Gray had offered if he pledged any recompense at all. As Haswell told it, there wasn't much time between you peeping your missing cutlass and catching the culprit. Per his pen, while he and some of the other crew raced to your aid, the natives instantly drenched their knives and spears with savage fury in you until you released the thief, staggered, and fell dead. Haswell admitted he and the others, punk shit, perhaps, broke for the ship to avoid the same happening to them. Marcus, the second one of us, when I say us, whom do you take it to mean? On record to set foot in what became this place we share was a dude named York, who traveled with the Lewis and Clark expedition. York is damn near mythic for his time as Clark's indispensable manservant slave. We, you and me, should feel proud of the tales of him whipsawing thick-ass logs at Camp Du Bois, hefting supplies no one else could, flexing his superior skills at hunting buffalo, geese, brants, being chosen to share his big medicine with native women who believed him a dark-skinned and nappy-haired wonder. York helped the corpse map out part of the Oregon Trail in those pre-Civil War days when they called this place 
the Oregon country. Oregon being a name anointed in 1822 by the Florida congressman who proposed a bill to incorporate the area as territory. In the Oregon country, owning slaves long-term was outlawed. However, the autonomous provisional government passing a lash law, ephemeral though it was, confirms those Oregon pioneers were still anti-us. Quote, Blacks in Oregon, be they free or slave, will be whipped twice a year until he or she shall quit the territory. End quote. Congress at last voted into existence the Oregon Territory in 1848 and elected a new provisional government, or rather, more men willing themselves white who believe with just the right statutes, one of which was our exclusion. This land could become their paradise. Marcus, had you lived long enough to instead immigrate to this paradisical place post the repeal of its initial exclusion law, you would have been subject to laws that forbade you voting or acquiring free land or an ordained coupling with any white soul who could and couldn't come, who could or couldn't stay was tough, tough talk, though, praise, praise. It amounted to but one expulsion. That hapless victim was a fair-skinned man named Jacob Vanderpool. Picture Vanderpool dressed impeccable in a checkered vest and tailored trousers and bucked white shirt with his silk tie bow just so. Him buzzing around his boarding house saloon restaurant when the sheriff showed up to arrest him because a local white business owner contended him in violation of the exclusion law. Pitcher Vanderpool's lawyer soon thereafter arguing the charge against his client was out and out unconstitutional. Pitcher the prosecutor calling witnesses, none of whom can say for fact when this not light-skinned enough man arrived in their midst and the judge delivering his verdict, quote, I being satisfied that the same Jacob Vanderpool is a mulatto and that he is remaining in the territory of Oregon contrary to the statutes and laws of the territory, do therefore order that the said Jacob Vanderpool remove from said territory within 30 days from and upon the service of this order. The said order to be served by showing to the said Jacob Vanderpool this original and at the same time delivering to him a true copy of the same. End quote. Imagine that sheriff serving Vanderpool the verdict at his boarding house saloon restaurant the same day it was adjudged. And that judgment quavering in Vanderpool's hand as he read it again and again and worried over delivering the news to his workers and finding a state, a city, a people that would accept him. Imagine Vanderpool, a symbol for Oregon's colored folk for decades to come, packing all that he could over the next few days and striking off quiet and stealthy from a white man's land. Seventy or so miles lying between the beach village where you drew your last breath and the curious city where I drew my first. A city birthed with men surnamed Lovejoy in Overton, 
fast friends canoeing the Willamette for Oregon City, docked near a well-known grove of trees called the Clearing. In my mind, the men hopped out, swanked inland, turned their hands to visors against a majestic sun, prospect as far as their cerulean or were they green, eyes could see and proclaim to their magnificent God, this should be ours. And the next month, they cleared more land, built structures, laid out plans. Within a year, though, a flood hit and spooked Overton into selling his stake in the claim to a man surnamed Pettigrove. Per the lore, both Lovejoy and Pettigrove wanted to christen the settlement after the New England city they hailed from, and thrice flipped a coppery penny that decided Portland it would be. Portland cityhood preceded Oregon statehood, which Congress granted on Valentine's Day in 1859. Should you have lived into your 90s and tried to settle in this nascent state, you would have discovered how unloved, unwelcome, and unsecured you were, would have found every bit of you opposed by its exclusion law the lone legislation of its kind for states admitted into the Union. Quote, no free Negro or mulatto not residing in this state at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall come, reside, or be within this state, or hold any real estate, or make any contracts, or maintain any suit therein and the Legislative Assembly shall provide by penal laws for the removal by public officers of all such Negroes and mulattoes, and for their effectual exclusion from the state, and for the punishment of persons who shall bring them into the state, or employ or harbor them." End quote. In the history of Oregon, our folks have numbered most years less than 5% of its residents, so it shouldn't be no big old surprise that in the 1920s the second coming of the KKK flourished in this blanched state and its cities. Here's proof. One summer night the Portland Clavern goaded reporters and civic leaders to a meeting into a hotel with the cryptic message, learn something to your advantage. Once the invited guest arrived, Clan members ushered them out of the hotel and into cars that chauffeured them to a secret throne room where reporters with box cameras and pens and notepads and a pair of Klansmen in full regalia awaited them. That evening, the Klan argued they weren't a hate group, that they'd be a powerful ally to the friends of law and order. To close the meeting, the King Klegel a Southern transplant who believed the state a monolithic promised land for his ilk, offered an ominous warning, quote, respect for the law and the working of a small army of unofficial detectives who will work with the constitutional law are the marks of the Klan character. There are some cases, of course, in which we will have to take everything into our hands. Some crimes are not punishable under existing laws, but criminals should be punished." End quote. 
The next day, the papers ran a photo that featured the exotic Cyclops and King Klego in their gleaming white glory suits beside dark-suited attendees, which included the chief and captain of police, a sheriff, the U.S. District Attorney, and State District Attorney, reps for the Justice Department and National Safety Council, even the mayor. The winter of 1922, the Klan held its first public meeting and lured thousands of curious Portlanders into the municipal auditorium for a keynote speech titled, The Truth About the Invisible Empire, Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Marcus, while the Klan flourished in the 1920s, so did we. Much credit due to the Golden West Hotel, the nexus of our social life in the city, which ain't me in the least dismissing the Freeman Secondhand Store, Rutherford Haberdashery, Barbershop, Cigar and Confectionery Store, or the Egyptian Theater. Despite folks who look like us being forced to sit in the balcony no matter how many seats sat empty below us. A couple of decades later, the city's infinitesimal black community boasted activists like Otto and Verdell Rutherford, who from the 40s to the 60s turned their living room into a virtual mimeograph factory for the NAACP. It also included members of the NACW, who once protested for the hiring of black postal workers. It came to include indefatigable members of the National Urban League and the Black United Front. And best believe we needed every single one of them. Back then, Portland was a place where one of us might be searching for a Sunday brunch or dinner spot or be confronted by a whites only or we cater to white only trade sign. Sentiments we hoped we'd escape. In this state, in this city, there ain't no escaping the gray. In days of rain, 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 there was a time when we couldn't escape redlining neither. Or in other words, the Portland Realty Board's corrupt code of ethics. Ethics which forbade realtors and bankers from selling us homes in prime neighborhoods for fear we'd plunge their worth. And should we forget our sanction limits, bold-ass bigots with spike hand-drawn posters on their lawns. We want white tenants in our white community. We want white tenants in our neighborhood to remind us. Scores of us can trace our roots in this city, the Rose City, to the 1940s, when one of our kinfolk from down south peeped a help wanted ad in their hometown paper packed their life into bags and or suitcases and caught boxcars called the Magic Carpet Special or the Kaiser Caravan into Portland for a chance to build a new life working in one of Henry Kaiser's shipyards. Those relatives locomoted into the City of Roses and found a hovel or shacked up with friends or relatives or in some cases slept on the pool table of a tavern and wash their private parts in a squalid bathroom. Or else, move to a slapdash development dubbed Kaiserville and renamed Vanport City. No matter the shelter they found, they could feel gratified building Liberty ships 
that would help the Allies beat the Nazis by clocking more dough for work than they ever did where they came from. Vanport was an incontrovertible boon for our folks, but that changed on Memorial Day, May 30th, 1948. Picture this. Men, women, families living in slipshod housing built on wetlands the year, snow melt, and more deluges than even a rain-tastic city could stand swell the Columbia River to record heights. Picture residents waking one morning to find a flyer slipped under their door that read, quote, Remember, dikes are safe at present. You will be warned if necessary. You will have time to leave. Don't get excited, end quote. That late afternoon, air raid sirens blared, and city and college workers and police and men and women and boys on bikes raced through the streets warning, the dam is broken, the dam is broken, get to higher ground. Picture men in sport coats and fedoras humping trunks on their backs and mothers in long print dresses toting shirtless diaper babies or armloads of hangered clothes, all fleeing for higher ground. Taxis and buses with passengers pushing the limits of physics tore up a hill to drop their loads until a crush of stalled cars blocked the route. Imagine the Columbia River surging into the city in Leviathan waves and men late in minding the mandate to evacuate, wading through waist-high muddy water with their toddlers on their shoulders. The water sank cars, snatched buildings off their foundations, rose beyond the tops of stop signs. Dozens gathered along an avenue and gawked at the scene below, at couples stranded on their roofs, men in power boats breaking through windows for rescues, inconsolable housewives crying, we lost everything. What had been moments ago a delta was now a filthy lake teeming with letters, heirlooms, photos. That night, the Red Cross opened emergency headquarters in downtown Portland in dozens of hospitals, churches, schools, and strangers' homes became relief centers. The flood scuttled the lion's share of us for shelter in northeast Portland's Albina district, which sent the Germans and Scandinavians hightailing for the suburbs. Before long, somebody dubbed Northeast Tombstone Territory or the tombs, and like other exercises in municipal neglect, it became a threat to our well-being. My mama grew up in the tombs and testifies not to its menace, but to memories of grown folks shambling to Mr. Collins' store to buy greens and a box or waiting for the fruit guide to hit Mississippi Ave with crates of apples harvested in Hood River to the times that when a child was sick, parents would call the Watkins product man or shuffle down to the Rexall drugstore for back-home remedies. Mom recalls my great-grandmama shuttling her and her uncle brothers and aunt sisters to the Lloyd Center Mall to pick out a winter coat. She reminisces about the days or weekends she and a dusky crew would skip down to the community center for a class on crocheting or knitting or cooking or quilting 
for lessons on how to swim or weave a gimp. Circa the time mom was rocking pigtails and traipsing the craft classes, the cotton club was the hot spot for grown folks. Marcus, you would have had to live lifetimes for the chance to pick your Afro-planetary, don loud polyester pants and a ruffle or puff sleeve shirt, and escort your mane squeezed down to the club. You might spend the night puffing menthols and ordering libations while you watch the live show of an act you've seen on American Bandstand or Soul Train. Other nights, you'd swear the room chimerical as you sat tables away from Cab Calloway or Joe Lewis or Sammy Davis Jr. Every night, the carousing would end with the club's sailor cap proprietor touting, we're the only club on the West Coast with wall-to-wall soul. Those were the good times. Good, good times. But since there ain't never been such a thing as celebration enough to know our plight, we rioted in 67, set firebombs in 69. The riots nor the bombs posed a problem of much significance to those in power, since in the scheme and scope of this city, this state, we, deemed Negroes at the time, have never amounted to much beyond a noisome political nuisance. As proof, I submit to you the time strangers once appeared at the front door of dozens of Northeast residents and warned them to move because the city had approved plans to raise their houses for a hospital expansion and a new coliseum. Some of the eminently displaced joined the Emanuel Displaced Persons Association, and one meeting witnessed a neighbor beseeching bureaucrats to treat her with dignity and care. As further proof, I submit the time Portland's unfinest dumped three dead possums on the doorstep of the burger barn because they believed it a neighborhood treasure. The city's first black police commissioner fired those officers and an arbitrator with the quickness reinstated their jobs. Marcus, there's the history of ours that's hit the books, whatever more should live in its ledgers, but we must, I must, keep alive the record of where we lived and how we lived and what we lived and died for, lest it slip into the ether. You are listening to Storybound. And now for a short break. from our break. If it's cool with you, I'd like to skip ahead to when I was a wee bit, to the umpteen days I spent decked in a purple robe belting going up a yonder as part of the youth choir of First AME Zion, the oldest African Methodist church in the state. In those days, my great-grandmother 
or great aunt or some other born again relative would drag my brothers and cousins and brother cousins and sister cousins and me to what felt like a year long Sunday service or a night long Sunday service or a holiday service or revival. When service would end, we'd gather in a church hall and gobble our paper plates soaked through with collard green juice or chicken grease, mountainous church dinners. What I want to tell you about is the one year I played Little League Baseball at Peninsula Park. I couldn't hit a fastball for shit. Where Saturdays, they held games on several diamonds. Where four and four battles turned the hoop courts across the park into a chain net symphony. Kids my age swam in the park's pool until the whites of our eyes turned devil red or else our aquatic fun was cut short cause somebody's baby brother or sister or cousin pissed or shat in the shallow end. Those days included skipping an afternoon to Union Ave, later named MLK Junior Boulevard, with the coins or loose bills I haggled out of an adult or mine from the bottom of my mama's purse or collected from a couch or change jar to cop hot food or candy from Johnny's and Lenny's convenience store. On birthdays or a special day, I had action at a trip to the caramel popcorn shop in the mall or an ice cream parlor or the pizza parlor with the fire engine truck displayed inside. Back then, our bitty ball seasons birthed hoop dreams. We played for a certain team or else we wasn't as cold as we thought we was. Reveries that, if they didn't flame out all too soon, men balling in spring tournaments held hours elsewhere and spending whole summers practicing in Irving Park. Most of the Hoopers I know spent part of their summers working for a nonprofit that serviced at-risk youth, or all of it being one. Coming of age in this placement, feeling as though I toured damn near every elementary school in Northeast. Not because I wanted to, but because there was often something or other that made the rent impossible for my mama or whoever else to pay. It meant attending a few middle schools and a couple of high schools, catching a public bus to school and standing at an uncovered bus stop on an ultra-drenched day with the frail hope somebody I knew would ride by and swoop. The day after my 13th birthday, a carload of bloods murdered Ray Ray Winston the city's inaugural gang homicide. Reporters interviewed Ray Ray's mama the next day, broadcasted her standing outside the projects in a shower cap and black jacket with a microphone punched at her shoulder. Ray Ray was well loved by everybody, she explained. He didn't mess with nobody. They showed Ray Ray's high school hoop coach with a mess of hair under a baseball cap and sunglasses hanging from the neck of his t-shirt. He'd be the kind of kid you want for a son, he told reporters. Then there was the spectacle of young Ray Ray's funeral. Police blocking all access roads to the church. Police questioning drivers. Police conducting targeted searches of people making their way for the entrance. A procession of mourners filing into the church. Among them, 
a dude wearing suspended slacks and a white shirt, somebody's grandpa in mutton chop sideburns and a shark skin suit, a woman wearing a leisure crail and ankle length leaf print dress, youngsters in their Sunday best, in hella crips there to support their fallen comrade, crips sporting rags tied over their heads and lokes, crips donning blue plaid shirts single buttoned at the throat, Crips wearing sweatshirts with the words R.I.P. Ray Ray Loke, CVC, ironed on the back. And still, another Crip set marching to the church in a uniform of black hats and white tees and blue jeans. Ray Ray's death heralded our, the hour being my cohorts and the hardheads who succeeded us, enduring love affair with colors, served as proof we'd become mortal threats to each other. But that same year, the second coming of the KKK known as the Skinheads also proved baleful. One night, skins fresh off passing out white power pamphlets and burning hours guzzling beers, accosted an Ethiopian grad student named Mugaleta Sarah, who was outside his car chatting with friends. The racists yelled at Sarah and his homies to move, and when they didn't, they hopped out their compact and started wailing on them. That night, a skin named Ken Death Mieski grabbed a bat from his trunk and bashed Sarah three times in the skull, the final blow crushing his head between the bat and the hard pavement. Sarah was murdered in southeast Portland but the nexus of our life and death for a few decades more was Northeast Portland, what we rechristened the NEP or the town. And Marcus, had you been born again and lived among us tenderfoot NEP dwellers, we might've called you OG or big homie or big bro or fam or family or cuddy or partner the town featured no poverty of dudes disposed to fray. Dudes named Peekaboo, or Pep, or Cowboy, or Face, or Rabbit, or Cluck, or Big Red, or Champ, or Chip, or Stitches, or TN, or Nook Nook, or Eminem, or Moni, or JD, or Debo, or Devious, or South Central, or Eastwood, or Hollywood, or Fast Living, or Lazy, or Teaspoon, or Choo Choo, or Maniac, or Kenny Mac, or Blazer, or A-Bone, or Big Red, or No Toes, or O-Dog, or Quick. Those who put in abundant work receive the honor of a deuce, like Little Smurf was to Big Smurf, like Little Foxy was to Foxy, like Hog Deuce was to T-Hog. All that work has begot errors of big homies and little homies and gang heroes and gang villains and funerals of big and little homies and heroes and villains and innocents that include crowds so large they spill out of an avenue baptist church and into the street 
the NEP, the town, demands ample faith and dozens upon dozens of places to worship. We also homage the Rose, the Rose Garden, Rose Quarter, Rose Bushes in the yards of homes in the West Hills, in neighborhoods where developers build and open to the public, a new street of dreams every year, a street that is for someone else's dreams. Because the truth is, some of us dream, but far too many dream small, realistic. And when those young dreams desert us, some start demanding by force things that ain't ours. Others move to Vegas to pimp, purchase a new ride and voyage home with the intent of triumphing up and down MLK. Those who stay local, those with aspirations average as shit and abandoned faith, covet restored muscle cars with custom systems, exotic paint, and wire rims with too many spokes to count. Others, oh boy was this me, cop a sack from a big homie, a pre-cooked and acetone cut underway dope sack, and stand on a street grown folk warned us off of, failing or going or Gattenbine or Skidmore or Mallory or Rodney or Church or Roseline, corners where young boys whose quivering flames were doused previous to ours carried stolen straps and grudges against the world. We posted on hot blocks all night for damn near nothing. Only half of which, if we were lucky, was ours to keep. That was our cosmos. The reason there's been a hell of a chance of finding who we've been looking for in the Justice Center if for months we ain't seen them on the streets. One summer, recalcitrant dudes known as the Richmond stealth among us on a mission to murder my cousin friend for an alleged heist. Word was they promised to kill members of his family if they couldn't find him. They spied his stepfather at a gas station and shot several bullets into his back. They later found my cousin friend's car outside the house of a girl who just celebrated her 21st birthday. They surrounded and fired more than 50 bullets into the house, killing her. Not too long after, they broke into the apartment of my cousin friend's biological father and beat him for his son's whereabouts. When he wouldn't or couldn't reveal it, they shot him in the leg and groin, put a picture of my cousin friend in his hand and shot him one last time in the head. And I've told you this because I need you to know that the NEP and what's happened in it is as much a part of Oregon, of Portland, Oregon, as pioneers and a copper penny in the street of dreams. But I've been away some years, and denizens of the old NEP have been pushed to the city's periphery, out to a place we call the Numbers. Now the Rose City, home, may damn well be a new city, one whose inheritors post placards that read, keep Portland weird or keep Oregon weird 
and tacit, so tacit, charge all those that ain't them with translation. Marcus, I'll close soon. But before I do, I must tell you about a not so long ago day I cruised the arteries of this new city, Alberta, Mississippi, Williams Ave. Saw on Alberta a staffing company in a yoga studio and restaurant bars. Saw cheery citizens lunching on a patio under the shade of tall trees and a vacant lot transformed into a scaled metropolis of food trucks. There was a clothing store and a bike shop and a sticker shop and a donut shop and a place that fixes guitars. That day I rode up and down Mississippi and saw a tattoo shop and a tea shop and an art gallery and a bookstore. Witnessed a shabby dude, the lone brown face for blocks in any direction, flitting to destination somewhere. Saw a cafe that sells crepes and a boutique that hawks high-end glasses. While wheeling the wide berth of an interminable-ass bike lane, I peeped a dude on a mountain bike in khakis and an Oxford shirt and a woman tattooed in plural on a cruiser. Every few feet, or so it seemed, construction crews were erecting odes to privilege. On Williams Ave, I beheld more miles of bike lanes and bike shops and bikers and the bike bar. There was an Art Deco hospital building under construction and a bakery and a hair studio and a Pilates studio and yet another damn yoga studio. There was a mother pushing a hooded stroller and a couple traipsing the sidewalk hand in hand as if this world would never fail them. But what I didn't see on Williams Ave was a single black face any which way my head turned. Our absence made me question whether this new city is the yield of what they've sown or what we've reaped. It made me wonder if it's our just due from surrendering our hope too soon or dreaming pragmatic or mashing on somebody's baby girl all winter to glory new wheels down MLK in majestic summer brilliance or being enchanted with colors or transforming from one gang to the other or copping a dope sack on consignment from a head start on prison big homing and posting all night on a dim side street for a few bucks, if even a buck, of profit, or seizing with a strap what don't belong to us, or flouting a second or third strike, and revolving to prison to serve a mandatory minimum stretch, I ask myself, could this new place, home, which seems so much the locus of our undoing, be the harvest of our collective deeds? The answer is yes, but the answer is also that you and me and the generations between and beyond us must refuse assuming the greatest weight for what this place has become. Because if these centuries attest to anything, it's to the incontrovertible truth that this ain't our Eden and won't be.
for that was never their intent until Mitch, a.k.a. the little homie. Finally came to this town, anxiety allowed me, tell me to stay in the house, still try to fill me with doubt like I'm not meant to be exactly where I am, pursuit of happiness, my right is an American dream, seem to be around the corner, travel to a distant land, they got me feeling like a foreigner, born to take a leap of faith, safe is commonly confused, with occupying space till our resources are used, put my feet to the concrete, heat beating on my face, sweat dripping off my neck, cowardice is commonplace, ask me why I walked away, I said I had to leave, these boots were made for walking, but these shoes were made for chasing Dreams I've been running, and the sun is shining Reminding me why I'm alive, just to take a dive Off that high board, my lord, shooting for that high score Out of this world, like an intelligent life form I didn't come this far, just to get this far My fear won't get the best of me, ain't stopping till the rest in peace Manifest my destiny, cause jealousy will never be My excuse to not work endlessly Stand up, together we're stronger Like hell, if I said I didn't love it, the rush in your gut, the chance that it could all be rubbish. Ain't never done it just to say that I did, cause it's the only thing I wanted growing up as a kid. Make a move, something worth remembering. Speak the truth, even when your voice is trembling. Steady your hands from shaking, take a deep breath. What they despise is weakness, I realize is death. It's the weird ones that change the world, it's been proven. There's a special type of genius in the ones they call stupid. I see the beauty in your flaws, some would call hideous. It's not that I don't see evil, the racked oblivious. I just choose not to make it my focus because too often it can seem so hopeless. So find the chance to embrace it, face it, leave enemies wasted, taking what you've created and appreciate where you made it. That's all. Stand up, together we're stronger. Dream, I can belong here. My pain This story was an excerpt from the book, Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family, written and narrated by Mitchell Jackson. The song for this episode, Here I Am, was written and performed by Zane, featuring vocals from Stephanie Strange and produced by Tim Carplus. The sound design for this episode was put together by Tim Carplus and myself. We'd also like to thank Rosie and the folks at Simon & Schuster for helping us arrange this recording with Mitchell. Storybound is mixed, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. This show's theme was developed with the help of James Cook. You can find his music under the name Grain Table. We'd also like to thank Modestus Mancus for this outro sample. Care to tell us what you think of the show? You can find us on Twitter at StoryboundPod, or you can tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. The Podglomerate.
a sonic universe.